And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. So this episode, the one you are listening to right now, may prove to be the most derisive and polarizing episode I have ever done because the topic is so controversial. Today, we are going to discuss spiders. And I know that the show will now fall into two camps, those who love spiders and those who hate spiders. Now, I fall into the middle. I don't necessarily love them, but I definitely don't hate them. I've often saved several uh, on occasion, I'll find them in the bathroom, in the in the living room, wherever it is, and I'll put them outside. Now, we're going to find out whether or not that is actually the correct course of action later on in the episode. That's a little teaser for later. But for the time being, now for those of you in the I'm terrified of spider camp, technically called arachnophobia by professionals, hopefully by the end of this episode, you are going to have a newfound respect for spiders, their abilities, their variations, and the benefits to not only the, the food web, no pun intended, but also to civilization, human civilization as a whole. For those who love spiders, you're in for a major treat because I've got one of the premier spider experts with me on the show. And you may know this, but spiders are one of the rare creatures where several thousand brand new species of spiders are discovered every single year. Uh, that is very unique amongst animals. Rarely do you find that many variations discovered every single year, but they are right into that camp. So without further ado, let's get on with this. Let's get jump right into this with Rod Crawford, who is the curator for the Spider Collection at the Burke Museum in Seattle, one of the largest in the United States. Am I getting that correct, Rod? That's right. As well as uh, several other related collections. Oh, wow. Because at least this, from the spiders alone, you guys have 170 plus thousand, 170,000 plus spider specimens? Uh, uh, roughly. It's been a while since I totaled them up. <laughs> so, <laughs> do you guesstimate it or do you actually go one by one? Uh, well, I mean, I have, I, I can uh, total up the uh, ones from Washington. Yeah. I might have done it this spring, but. Uh, I haven't been at the museum all spring. However, I haven't been actively collecting all spring either. 170,000 is quite a number. I mean, that's a very impressive number. The second largest on the West Coast, from what I understand. What I love is I've been doing a lot of research on, on your stories, and I think that they're incredibly interesting. So I'm going to say a couple things here. Let me know if I get this right. So you have a degree in chemistry from the University of Washington, correct? No, that's not true. I started out as a chemistry major, but I transferred to zoology when I was a sophomore. See, that makes way more sense. I, I didn't see that anywhere, but I was wondering how the chemistry tied into the spiders. I switched to zoology because I was interested in spiders. Of course, there's no such thing as an arachnology major. You have to take the cell biology and the physiology and the invertebrate biology and et cetera, et cetera, uh, just like uh, 
any other uh, zoology major. At least I could major in zoology then. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Subsequently, the poor old zoology department got swallowed up like a bank merger. Or swallowed whole like a slow male black widow spider right after mating. Uh, you'll understand that joke by the end of the episode. When So you've been there, I mean, we're coming in on 50 years, right? I mean, you're almost half a century cultivating this collection. Uh, do you plan on being preserved in alcohol and stored with the spiders, or are you going to do something else? I don't think uh, the, the museum would never go for it. They, <laughs> no? The anthropologists are in overall charge, and they are exceedingly sensitive about human remains. Sure, sure. Well, that makes That makes sense. Uh, now, so you ended up there, you know, you're a zoology major. I think your story that you, how you kind of got there, you, you kind of ended up as the curator there by a, kind of a series of interesting events. How did that kind of happen? How'd you go from zoology major to, you know, the 50-year-plus curator of the second largest spider collection? It was the other way around. I was already working on spiders at the Burke before I switched majors. I switched majors because I was working on spiders at the Burke. Oh, I see. So you, so you did get the job as the curator while you were a chemistry major. Well, no, I was, I was a volunteer in those days. Okay. I started volunteering in 1971, just through a sheer happenstance. A guy I happened to meet at the library knew there were spiders at the Burke. I was just studying spiders at the library at the time and not really doing much of anything with them. Right, right. Well, so you, I mean, when you were in high school, I, I read this someplace that you're, basically you were in biology and your teacher skipped a chapter on arachnids and you were like, I got to read this. I got to check these guys out. And so you read the chapter and then you got hooked and your parents bought you. Well, I got interested, but I was also interested in butterflies and other things. Well, butterflies are pretty cool. So you were interested in a lot of stuff, but is that kind of where at least the interest was, or, or was there was there another like moment? Well, I mean, it. Uh, I was interested in uh, identifying and classifying things. Butterflies were easy. There were already books right, uh, right. doing that for me, right, although right. not as many uh, by a long side as there are now. <laughs> right. But spiders were very, very difficult. I had to go right back to square one and look at all the original literature. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I was spending the summer of 71 in the library doing that. Now, I went, my grandmother lives in Florida, and she asked me to take her to a butterfly exhibit. And there would happen to be one at the museum there. And they had, you know, besides having like a butterfly pavilion, which my grandma loved. But I found it interesting to see all of the, I mean, they had... I mean, thousands on display, thousands of different butterflies, different genus species all over the, the world. I mean, it was pretty incredible. Butterflies are very beautiful creatures. Uh, so now when you say you went back to the original literature on spiders, is that how you kind of came across um, Thomas Muffet? No, I uh, I learned about him some years later. When I say the original literature, I mean the original American literature. Oh, I see. Okay. I wouldn't have been looking up uh, ancient writings on European spiders because I was only interested in identifying the spiders that I might find around Seattle. But I mean, but you did discover them at some point. Cause I remember I was watching a video and you said that he's your favorite author on spiders. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not sure. I would exactly say that. He believed in a lot of uh, crazy things that uh, he uh, got from. Uh, ancient Greeks and uh, earlier medieval writers. He believed that spiders and spider parts and uh, even spider excrement could be used in human medicine. Right, yeah. 
and his uh, poor daughter got to be his guinea pig. Some people suspect that she was the original Miss Muffet. <laughs> yeah, I read that she. There was some talk about that. I mean, obviously, people know the Little Miss Muffet nursery rhyme. You know, Thomas Muffet, very unfortunate but hilarious name. And I, I, from what I saw, there wasn't a lot of connection. But it seems almost too strange of a coincidence not to have some level of connection. But he, he was an interesting fellow, nonetheless. Uh, but so, as you were studying spiders, it was Melville Hatch who kind of got you. He ran insects at the Burke Museum, and he kind of got you in. And and your connection to Melville Hatch is kind of... Is- right. It was because, uh, yeah, I mean, the guy I met at the library uh, referred me to one guy at the Burke Museum, and he, in turn, referred me to uh, Melville Hatch. And uh, he immediately uh, showed me a desk and showed me the spiders and found me a microscope. Put you right to work. And over the next following few years, I had many illuminating conversations with him. He was quite a guy. Yeah, well, it seems like your connection, I mean, it, it seems like a pretty close connection. He got you into the into the Burke Museum, but also he was the founder of the Scarabs, uh, the, which is a bug society, founded in 1937. And you've been the, uh, are you still editing the, the newsletter that's been uh, since 1985, I believe? You've yes, Right now, I am uh, kind of editing it by remote control. Right, yeah. Because I don't have a printer at home, so I uh, do it, and then I uh, email it to somebody else who prints it out. So did, was it Melville who got you involved in the Insect Society? Because Well, he invited me to a meeting once. The group start, sort of stopped being active for two or three years after he moved out of the U District mm-hmm. in 1978, and... Uh, then uh, was reorganized by Sharon Coleman, who's our highest scarab now. Right. Well, I mean, it's a pretty. I mean, it's an amazing group. I mean, you're. It's coming up on. I think it's 83 years. This has been going on. It's you know. Uh, so this is you know long running, ongoing, very involved insect society that's got some le- level of renown. Yeah, I mean, we certainly have a history. Uh, we're also uh, kind of unusual in that we're. Uh, an anarchic society. We have never, ever had a constitution or bylaws or official officers or anything like that. Wow, so you're kind of like run by committee? Uh, we're run by whoever agrees to uh, help run. <laughs> whoever wants to step up. Well, it's amazing. It's a really cool group. I'm going to put links to all this stuff on the website because I think it's it's fascinating. So before we jump into spiders, i got to ask you one other question. You are a big horror movie fan. I think you have, you've you've seen thousands of pre-1960 movies. But not horror movies in particular. I'm a, I'm a big old movie fan. Uh, oh. I, I don't particularly specialize in horror movies. I'll I'll watch uh, romantic comedies, westerns, you name it. Yeah, all all pre nineteen sixty. Mostly, I mean, there are there are a handful of uh, post sixties movies that I like. Well, I, d- I have another podcast where I talk about pop culture and technology, and I just did an episode on The Fly and Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which are two of my favorite pre nineteen sixty sci fi movies. Mm, now, The Fly is kind of a schlocky B movie, but. Uh, uh, Body Snatchers, of course, is all everyone agrees is a great movie. Sure, I mean, there's a spider that takes a very, a very important role in the fly. No spoiler alerts there, but, but uh, you know, I, I think it's a fun movie. Very different than the 1986 remake, for sure. Yeah, and the spider takes an important role in the uh, Incredible Shrinking Man too. And uh, in that movie, uh, they uh, have this uh, reduced in size guy being caught in a web. 
but the spider, when it comes out, is a tarantula, and tarantulas <laughs> don't make webs. Right? Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, what's what's great about kind of that era of movies, especially? I know you're not a horror movie, the aficionado necessarily, but in the pre, especially in the fifties during the atomic era, we had lots of horror movies that were giant bugs, giant spiders, all you know through radiation were made huge. Yeah, and in each case, they uh, got to be giant because of atomic radiation. You know what really happens if you expose bugs to enough atomic radiation? They get sterilized and can't reproduce. I thought they would just melt. I guess it depends on how much radiation. But yeah, that's yeah, doesn't doesn't quite work the way it did in comic books and horror movies. Uh, so, so you have this gigantic collection you're curating, the Spider Collection. But I mean, you, you have to you have to add to it. And I imagine you've got another website that kind of recounts your spider hunting trips. Uh, so people can look at that. I'll have a link, to, a link to that on the website. They're pretty interesting stuff. How many spider, new spider species, this is the type of animal that is kind of, has lots of undiscovered species out there. How many new species have you personally discovered through your travels? Well, it's, I can't give you an exact number. It's uh, well over 100, uh, probably less than 200. Have you named any after yourself? Uh, you're you're not supposed to name things after yourself. I've had a couple named after me by friends. <laughs> right. Well, I know you. I know there's a there's a whole decorum, but I mean, there's some level of vanity, right? If you discover a new spider, I know I would do that. Maybe that makes me less of a person. Or well, I mean, your name is attached to anything you name. Uh, after the actual name. But don't you want like a Rodiferous Crawfordimus? Like, don't you want that like as a spider species, like maybe a jumping spider or some kind of, you know? I wouldn't use a uh, uh, barbarous dog Latin like that. <laughs> I would uh, make it actually Latinized. Right. Well, that's no that's no fun, right? You got to make it, you know, like, like Wile E. Coyote cartoons, right? You got to have like, you know... Terribilius Hungarius or whatever. I mean, that's you know, that's the that's the official name of of the Roadrunner. I think if you kind of go back, do you remember your first encounter with a spider? Because I definitely don't remember mine, but I can think of my most memorable moment with a spider. But I wonder if for someone who enjoys spiders, does that hold like that level of impression? You know, being young. Well, I think the earliest spider encounter I remember was when I was probably about eight or nine, I was uh, doing a little insect zoo at home. Oh, cool. I had uh, included in this was uh, a token spider, which uh, looking back on it, I recognized was probably a common local grass living wolf spider, but I didn't know what it was then. Uh, and I didn't know how to take care of it. And I don't think it lived very long. <laughs> right, yeah. But, you know, it's funny because I think a lot of people remember, there's some, like, memory in their childhood, they remember sp some spider incident. I remember my first memorable moment that I can think of, I was, I was older, I was probably like maybe six or seven, but we had a shed in the backyard, and I remember there was this gigantic, we called it a wolf spider, I don't know if it actually was, but it was definitely big and black, and it was at the back of the shed, and any time we had to go into the shed, I felt like I could always see that spider in there, and I always felt like you know, kind of a Greek, you know, a Greek hero <laughs> kind of encountering, you know, Cerberus or something like that, or Aragog from Harry Potter, just like this giant spider that you had to appease to kind of get by and get the thing out of the shed. But that really stuck with me, and I feel like in my childhood memory, it feels like that that spider lived, you know, a decade, but it probably is only like you know two or three years. I don't know how long they live in the wild, but it could definitely couldn't be a decade. 
But I, I, you know, I've always been intrigued by spiders. I, I'm not really afraid of them, but I'm incredibly respectful, and I think that they're just unbelievable architects. Uh, you know, I walk through lots of spider webs when, when I'm walking my dogs at night, which is annoying, but also kind of amazing that they really have these strands of of silk that go everywhere. They're I don't know. I, I just I've always been fascinated by spiders. So I've got to ask you. This is this is probably the most important question, Rod, that I'm going to ask you all all afternoon. I grew up a Spider-Man fan, and one of the things I always thought was interesting about Spider-Man is he gets bit by a, bitten by a radioactive spider, and he gains the spider's powers. But from what I've learned, what I've known growing up, lots of different spiders have all sorts of traits, abilities. So if you could get... I don't know how familiar you are with Spider-Man, but if you had to guess which spider got irritated and bit him to give him all of his powers, what do you think it would be? Oh, I... I couldn't even guess because, for one thing, Spider-Man generates silk from his fingertips. Whereas, if he was, if he really had the powers of a real spider, he would generate the silk from his butt. <laughs> right. Well, that's true. Well, now, now, original Spider-Man. I'm, I'm talking original. I'm not talking Ultimate Spider-Man. The original Spider-Man. He, Peter Parker, actually created spider web shooters. So they're actually technology. They're little mechanical things that that are on his wrist, and he makes the web fluid. So the spider silk aside, you know, with his with his abilities, I actually have an example. Let me give you my example, and you tell me how close I am. So the the port the genus Portia is a jumping spider. It can jump about, I think it can jump like 50 times its size. It has incredible eyesight. It's one of the few, you mentioned that jumping, in one of your talks, you mentioned jumping spiders are kind of the jocks of the spider world, the dumb jocks of the spider world, where they do cool athletic feats but aren't very bright. The Portia is actually an incredibly intelligent spider that can formulate a plan of attack. He takes detours to, to break visual contact. He attacks others, cannibalizes other spiders. Uh, you know, I, this is this is kind of interesting. And I would even think with spiders, I think jumping spiders have two eyes in front, some around their head. This might even explain Spider-Man's spidey sense because if he has eyes all around his head, he can see all around him. I've never seen Peter Parker with his head shaved, so I don't actually know the answer to that. But I, I think this is an incredibly athletic spider, a, a spider that that attacks and wins against things stronger than him um, and formulates a plan of attack. What do you think about that? Well, uh... I, I've never done any Porsche research myself. I, I haven't even read all of the papers about the other people's research on that spider because I, I work on the spiders of northwestern North America. But uh, jumping spiders in general, people are most impressed by them because their world is visual like ours. So they're easiest to relate to. Yeah, well, and it's funny. There's So I live in California, and I have routinely on various different walks – I've seen, uh, basically, it's this small little black spider with kind of iridescent green and purple on its legs. And I've kind of seen it around. And what's weird about this spider, at least to me, a little unnerving, is that it moves so quickly that it seems to teleport. Not like not like around, but just like maybe in a circle as it's kind of eyeballing the, the world around it. And it's so weird because the legs, you can't even see the legs move. They move so quickly. And I would, I'm very curious about the natural world. Sometimes I go in close. You know, I know a spider is not going to come out and, you know, attack me or, or whatever. So I'm not, I don't get too fearful of spiders in general or, or other insects. But then I just came, learned that that's actually a jumping spider. The spiders with, you know, with eyes in the front of their head, like we have, like two little front facing eyeballs, that's a jumping spider. 
is it possible that just spider, while I'm looking at it, could get annoyed and jump into my face, or is that absolute hogwash? Well, it if it did jump into your face, it would uh, not be because it was annoyed. It would be because uh, it saw something that it misinterpreted. American jumping spiders, like I said, are kind of small-brained jocks. <laughs> right, yeah. Except the Porsche. I'm telling you, you're going to read about the Porsche, and, and there's there's actually a fun BBC Earth video that that is just uh, shows the some of the highlights of what this thing can do. I think you'll be impressed. Uh, this might be your new favorite spider, although I'm not 100% sure the kind of spiders you're into, but I feel like you might you might like this one. Uh, so now you work, you know, kind of besides categorizing spiders and and doing the taxonomy and 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 curating this incredible collection, you also have a website through the Burke Museum that kind of dispels the myths of spiders. And this seems to be, I don't know if it's your life's work, but definitely a life mission. Right. It's uh, something that I had the idea for in the fairly early on uh, when the internet was not even uh, very old. I had been answering uh, phone calls with public spider questions for years and years and years. Everybody had these same wrong assumptions, a whole long, and I developed a whole long list of those wrong assumptions. And I thought, why don't we put together a website debunking all these? And then it grew from there. The original version, I wrote all the code for the website myself. I have to say, I went through the whole list and... You know, I'm not, you know, I'm not a zoologist. I'm not an, a spider expert by any stretch of the imagination, although I do find them fascinating. But I have to say, I was actually a little shocked at some of the stuff that I saw there because some of the myths seem utterly ridiculous. And so, so to have to dispel them <laughs> seemed a little silly. But there were some some on there that I think are are at least common enough to the person who's who knows a little bit about spiders that may not know you know whether they're true or not my favorite and this is one that i've always heard and it's still i don't know that this is necessarily a myth so much but this idea that you're always three feet away from a spider this is a little bit of a misquote right now an actual spider specialist uh, accidentally mm. started that. Yeah, one. yeah, and I think it was misquoted because I think originally it was like a couple of meters, which is like nine or ten feet, which is considerable difference between three feet. He said probably a few feet away or mm. something like that. Mm. Then somebody, then somebody writing a copy about an exhibit changed that to three feet, and then somebody misquoted that in a book. Thought it'd be more scientific to call it one meter, and uh... <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, same distance. Um, but this is actually pretty close to being true. The only time it's really not are in extreme situations, which you mentioned in in your article, which are being on an airplane or being in the middle of a large parking lot. You know, when you're kind of out in nature or even in your home, you know, there's you you mentioned one of the myths about house spiders, which we're going to talk about in a second. But this is kind of true, maybe. It's not three feet, but if you extended that to, let's say, eight feet, that's, I think that that's almost accurate in like 90% of the time, right? Well, I don't know about that. I, I'm sitting right now in a sixth-floor apartment, and uh, I practically never 
see spiders in my apartment because it's so far up above ground level and house spiders uh, prefer to be on the first two floors of a building. I guess that that makes sense. I mean, I live on the seventh floor and I rarely see them. Occasionally, but but very, very rarely, actually. And, you know, one of the other myths on there that I actually, this is something I learned, which seems to, which should be common knowledge, is this idea of a house spider. You know, this idea that there are spiders out there that actually have kind of adapted to human living. You know, we're sitting on top of their homes. They're not sitting on top of our homes, which people forget. But that they're that they're kind of they've adapted themselves to live inside, and actually being outside is detrimental and possibly you know could limit their survival. That's very interesting. Yes, and uh, then uh, I couldn't even uh, begin to guess at how many times I've heard people boast at how nice they are to spiders because when they find one indoors, they put it back outside. Ha, ha, ha. Well, I mean, it's better than squashing it and killing it, right? I mean, we do have a, they got to have a spectrum of nice. I don't know. <laughs> so you'd rather squish it to, to smash it to death than put it outside? Well, I mean, uh, if, if you're putting it at a place where it can't possibly survive, you're condemning it to a much slower death. <laughs> right. Or you could look at it and say there's a possibility it could survive, and that's better than in, inevitable death of getting squashed. I think you can make a strong argument either way on this one. One of the things, I think the actual thing that I love about spiders, the thing that, that really attracted me to spiders, is the spider web itself. You know, the, the, it's, you know, it is so incredible and such, a, I don't want to say freak of nature, but definitely an adaptation, a phenomenal adaptation of nature. It's so powerful that we even have started trying to engineer this into clothes and into all sorts of stuff for human consumption. So you mean spider silk, not just the not the web necessarily itself, because all spiders make silk, but only about half make a web. Right, right, yes. Um, I think most people listening hopefully will understand that that's the distinction that I meant. But yes, spider silk, anything that, you know, this the silk, that the, this, this product of the, the spinnerets, this incredible, you know, it's a protein, and it's got stretchiness and strength. It's, you know, five times this, this strength of steel or something like that. I mean, it's incredible to, you know, and it, it's, it's a biological material, which is also pretty phenomenal. Anything that we have that has that level of strength is completely artificial. Um, it's not biological in nature. Uh, but this is this thing that attracted me to it. But one of the things that I, hopefully you can kind of correct, correct me on this, but the sticky part of it, spider silk, from what I understood from reading some of your things, the sticky part of the spider silk is not necessarily inherent to the silk itself. That's deposited by the spider for entrapment, correct? Well, sticky silk is one particular kind of silk. The spiders that make sticky silk, which are in a small minority and are pretty much all web-making spiders, are uh, possessed of uh, at least five different varieties of silk glands which make chemically different kinds of silk. One of those kinds is uh, sticky silk, and uh, the stickiness is uh, one component of the sticky silk, and it's not the uh, component that gives it structural strength, obviously, but uh, it is something that is produced by a silk gland. So some silk is produced with the sticky, kind of like, you know, uh, it's produced with the stickiness kind of embedded into the silk itself, and then some it's deposited? Is that is that kind of how it works? Cause... Well, in an orb web, for example, the uh, primary sticky part come out as a coating on the uh, structural silk, and then the spider plucks the thread 
to make it coalesce into separate little globules, which apparently works better to entrap prey. Oh, oh, that's great. So he kind of scrapes all the, the sticky stuff together into little little goos, like little goop balls. Uh, no, not, not scrape, uh, just plucking the thread makes it vibrate into these globules. Oh, okay, okay. And from what I understand, the orb orb weavers, which is a very specific a very specific type of spider. And if you're listening to this and you haven't seen an orb weaver's web, you're missing out. These things are they're three-dimensional, at least some of them, some of the ones that I've seen, they're three-dimensional orbs and they're absolutely gorgeous. Orb we- orb webs are the kind uh Everybody sees because everybody who illustrates a spider web always draws an orb web, and uh, as a result, most people think that's the only kind of web there is, whereas it's even not even remotely the most common kind. Now, I, so maybe I'm confused. So when you say orb weaver, I'm so you're talking about like a Charlotte's Web type of the circle where you have the center and they kind of like spirals out. I'm talking about like the when right. I think of orb weaver, I think of like the like it's a literal orb. Like there are some spiders who can kind of create like a three dimensional sphere around themselves with like a little tunnel that they can get out of. Are those two different? Oh yeah, those are uh, totally different uh, spider groups, not orb weavers at all. Oh, what are those called? I, I always thought those were orbs. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, well, that depends. Uh, three-dimensional webs are made by sheet web weavers. They're also made by funnel weavers. There is uh, one or two groups of social orb weavers that make uh, multiple webs uh, close together that uh, put, all, put all together make a three-dimensional structure. Oh, wow. I love that, man. That's great. Community. That's like architecture. It's like building a little city. Now, one of the things that I I also thought was really interesting, I I knew that there were spiders that didn't, that don't make webs. Um, But I didn't know that there were so many that didn't, that, that, that don't build webs. To me, this is almost like birds that can't fly. It's a little weird. Like spider silk is almost one of these inherent properties. When people think of spiders, they think of spider webs. Uh, you know, that's it's 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 kind of strange. No, roughly half of the major groups of spiders, including the world's largest family, the jumping spider family, make no prey capture web. They make other silk structures, but no web. Pretty much all spiders, if in the female sex, make what we call an egg sac. They lay their eggs in batches wrapped up in silk. And people who don't know anything about spiders sometimes call that a cocoon. But that term is only used uh, for insects. Uh, egg sac is what we call it in spiders. And uh, then all spiders make a drag line. That's a thread they leave behind them as they move around. Some non-web weaving spiders make a kind of a silk cell to live in when they're not active. That's called a retreat. Uh, others don't. Even jumping spiders, some make retreats and some don't. Interesting. Now, this drag line, this is the thing that I think is really interesting. So I think this is what I'm walking through when I'm walking my dogs in the morning and I'm catching one of these things. No, probably what you're walking through in the morning, especially uh, in late summer, early fall, that would be a bridge thread that is made by an orb weaver who is starting to make an orb web across your path. <laughs> right, okay. No, that's that's probably true. I've always, I've seen a lot of these, you know, when the sun catches webs, this is, you know, very certain way, kind of, ir- it's iridescent in a way. When when I look up in, and I see like in the trees and I see these kind of random drag lines, is that, I assume that that's how the spider is getting around. Are those mostly 
a way to get like out of a tree and then they just kind of, you know, don't cut it down? Or is that, um, do they, do they ever use it to go back up the tree? No, any spider that's moving around anywhere, uh, unless it's, uh, really, uh, in a state of what you might loosely call panic, uh, carefully deposits uh, a drag line behind it and fastens it down from time to time with a little attachment disc of, uh, multiple thread thread loops i mean yeah this this is i mean we could talk all day about the spider silk i mean there's so many different types uh, it's pretty incredible one of the things i want to move on to is their the reproduction habits this is uh, you know i was looking into this this is kind of interesting i've always found like you know the way insects and and and, and arachnids you know it, the way they reproduce is, is is interesting, but spiders specifically, especially, you know, and this is only, you know, and I assume this is in a very minimal cases, but everyone's heard about the black widow, uh, the, you know, the black widow, the female. Can- and of course the uh, black widow female eating her mate is, uh, one of the things that I debunk on my website. Right. Now, you debunk it, but it, it's it's more of, it, but this does happen though. I mean, black widow females do it, eat. It, 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 it's. It happens occasionally in the uh, southern black widow. However, in the western black widow, which is what you're seeing in California Mm -hmm. and I'm seeing in eastern Washington, it has never once been observed in the wild. Hmm. Okay. Only in laboratory cages where the male can't escape. Oh, wow. Interesting. But I mean, it's so it's it's a myth in that everyone, every black widow does it, but it's not a myth in that it happens. It does happen. I mean, it, you know, it happens. It happens occasionally in some species, but in our local species in the Western U.S., it apparently only happens under artificial conditions. What I like about that condition is that, you know, the, the males are significantly smaller than the females. I think it's like a 30 30 time 30 multiple difference you know if a male was 200 pounds uh, it's a, it's a, it varies a great deal from uh, 10 or 12 times to up to 200 times oh i didn't 200 that's a huge amount <laughs> well, that's a pretty big difference i mean it's so different and and because there is a chance you know not just with the black widow but there are other species of spiders who can eat their mates sometimes they mistake them for prey yes in fact uh, it uh, it's probably most common in uh, burrowing spiders. Hmm. Okay. Oh, because, wow. Because uh, if the male has to go way down into a burrow to mate with his mate, he may have a little more trouble getting away. <laughs> right. Because, I mean, yeah, and, and I think with well, the black widow, I don't know about the, the, the burrowing one. That's really interesting. But at least the males in the black widow and several others, they have to really do like a specific dance on the web. They basically pluck the web kind of like a guitar in a way that the female knows exactly what that is, and then she allows him to kind of approach. You know, he's got to kind of ask nicely, right? Right. In fact, as with most spiders, uh, they're not really very smart, and they're programmed to be fierce predators. And when they feel something in their web, that's the first program that comes into play. And the male has to really work hard to uh, suppress this and get her in the mood for mating. Each species uh, has a more or less specific courtship ritual in the case of web spiders and in the case of jumping spiders. However, the short-sighted hunting spiders frequently uh, dispense with a lot of the courtship. (laughs) Their males depend on being extremely fast and nimble. Right, yeah, (laughs) right, and jumping and getting out of there. 
crab spiders frequently uh, do uh, what we might term sexual bondage. Oh, you mean like they tie up the female? Right. They uh, quickly run around on the female's body, and if you uh, are watching the whole thing under a microscope, as I've done, you can see that what they've done is uh, fasten the female to the ground uh, with a number of loops of thread. <laughs> wow. Kind of like in Star Wars when they wrapped around those uh, the big walking adats in on, on Hoth. They kind of... Or hog tying it, basically. They want to make sure that they're getting out of this situation alive. I mean, that's got to be the idea, right? And you want to make sure that the female can't come after you. So you got to, you know, get in and get out. And another, so there's, there's, I just read this article about the Pennsylvania grass spider. And there was some interesting studies being done on why they, they kill the mates first. And what they've discovered is that the scent of a dead rival actually encourages other males to come by. Which is, I mean, they don't, in the, at least in the article, they didn't have a reason why that happens, other than maybe the, the female's already eaten. Well, that's, that's new to me. I've never, I've, I haven't read that research. Uh, it's, it's a pretty interesting idea, you know, this, this idea that if, if the female's just eaten, she's less likely to eat you, or, you know, it's all speculation at that point. But, no, I have to say, human beings, uh, we're a little complainy. We like to always talk about how difficult it is to find the perfect partner when, in fact, uh, you know, we actually have it. We have it pretty easy. There's very little chance that you're going to find someone that you like and have to avoid them trapping you, killing you, and cannibalizing your body. So, uh, human beings, we've got it pretty easy compared to spiders. But the other thing you mentioned is that it's male spiders. Two things: they're they have big sex organs, their palps that hang out in front of their face, which is which is kind of strange. And some will actually leave a palp inside of the female to prevent other males from depositing their sperm. Not a whole pulp, just a part of it. Just part of it, just like a cork, right? Right. But this is a very interesting, uh, you know, a very interesting mating you know, kind of evolutionary behavior, you know, but it, I guess it's effective, right? I mean, it's like a chastity belt. It, it, it must have uh, some benefit or it wouldn't have evolved. <laughs> very true. And then others make some kind of an exudate and how they do this, we haven't uh, figured out yet. That uh, plugs up the female's openings. Now, when you say exudate, does that mean like a like a goo, some kind of substance that they produced it? Yeah, some kind of goo, and uh, how it's produced, where it's from, I don't know. <laughs> no one knows. It's a mystery. Uh, that's. I mean, this... maybe somebody knows, but I don't know. Right? No, that's fair. That's. I mean, that's a really interesting stuff. Spiders are pretty cool. Uh, you know, and also on your website, this is this is fascinating about spiders. I did not know this at all, but that I mean, obviously, I knew that all spiders have eight eyes, no relation to the amount of legs that they have. But there's tons of variations in how the eyes are positioned on their head. I didn't know that. I thought there were just you know four sets in front, but but actually, this is how species are kind of determined: is how the eyes are situated, and some even have eyes in literally in the back of their head. Uh, th this is a pretty cool phenomenon, I think. Well, yes. I mean, that's uh, if you don't have any clue what major group a spider you're looking at belongs to, the eyes are usually the first thing you look at. Now, I imagine all the variation. Are these environmental advantages? Are there? Do we know why certain positions or certain um, variations or certain setup eyeball setups work better than others? In most cases, no. Uh, there's, uh, I mean, obviously. There are so many different arrangements. They're all adaptations for the uh, lifestyle of the particular spider that has them. They're not. There isn't one. If there was one that worked better 
than others uh, in all ways, uh, there wouldn't be so much variation. Now, with the jumping spider, so they, they have two eyeballs in the front. How are, the, are those two specific eyes, are they different? Do they capture things differently than the other six eyes? Yes, uh, at least uh, at least they they work differently from some of the other six eyes. Uh, they actually have a retina that can move. Oh wow! Okay. Which is, as far as we know, uh, no other spider, and uh, and even no insect or other arthropod has this ability. They actually can move their retinas to follow what they're looking at without moving their head. And uh, that's why when you're looking at a live jumping spider under magnification, you will see the uh, those front eyes appear to flicker. That's because the retina is moving. Now, when you look at these under a microscope, is there any chance that they'll, like, pop off like a frog off the, the slide? Or how do you keep them kind of, you know, situated in there? If you're looking at a live spider under a microscope, it's usually in some kind of a container. I wouldn't usually put uh, a live spider, especially a live jumping spider, just exposed uh, on the stage of a microscope. It wouldn't be there very long. Right, right. Well, I mean, so how do you, with a jumping spider, you know, especially because they can climb out and they can jump out. So what does the container look like? And is there any, I'm just curious what the setup looks like to take a peek at one of these. Well, the container I usually use if I'm just observing it is a cylindrical glass vial called a shell vial, which is optically clear so that you can see all the parts without any distortion. And then uh, one end uh, is not glass, uh, and uh, so you uh, get the spider in through that end and then plug it with cotton. All spiders are going to prey. I mean, I think one, a, a prey, not prey in a church, obviously, but prey on other, other animals. They're all going to, they're all going to predate. One of the kind of interesting things is that webs are one way to capture prey. But there's also hunting spiders, spiders that don't that, that just go out and hunt the aggressive spiders. But all of them are going to eat insects or whatever they eat. Uh, you know, mostly insects. Some eat you know other things. And then there's a third group which we call the uh, sit and wait predators. Oh right, yes, they kind of hang out until like a Venus flytrap in a way, right? Like they kind of hang out until something comes their way. Right, like uh, flower crab spiders uh, will sit on on or under a flower and just wait until some insect visits the flower. And then there are uh, trapdoor and uh, other burrowing spiders that remain in their burrow all the time and only prey on things that uh, pass within reaching distance of the burrow. Now, I imagine one of the trickiest things, and I guess this is what kind of will separate the successful spiders from the unsuccessful spiders, but knowing where to put the trap, and if you're a sit-and-wait spider, knowing where to hang out waiting for insects... How do they really, how do individual spiders determine the, the best place to kind of hang out or to put up their, their trap or put up their, their web? Trial and error. At least that's been shown with some orb weavers. Of course, nobody has done this research on every spider in the world. If you, if you put up a web and you're not getting anything sooner or later, you're going to go elsewhere and try try again. <laughs> right. I didn't know if there's any sort of like instinct or if they had like a sixth sense on where to go, if there's some sort of environmental factors that kind of went into where they put up a web or, or where they hang out. Because I imagine if you're sitting and waiting and nothing's coming by, you got to move along or you're going to die. Well, they certainly have more than six senses, but nobody's demonstrated any ESP as yet. <laughs> as yet. That's the key part of that, as yet. Uh, so when they do capture a prey, 
I think the common knowledge. I think this might be a, a myth that you kind of bust on your on your website. But one of the the common knowledge is that they kind of they they paralyze it with their toxin, then they wrap it up, and then these digestive juices they kind of inject in there and they liquefy the inside. So this is probably most spiders, but there are actually spiders who eat solids, who have a mouth and they kind of chew things up. Um, how many of those spiders are there? Right. In fact, uh, it's probably about half and half. Oh wow! I didn't know that. That's crazy. Of course. A lot of books don't even get the part about liquefying the inside right. They say, oh, spiders just suck the juices of their prey, which is a lot of utter hogwash. Now, so, and so just so I understand the distinction, sucking the juices would be like you know, drinking blood unaltered. But what they actually do is they inject right. a digestive enzyme that dissolves the inside into like a slushy slurry, and then they suck that out, right? Right. So they do, they do liquefy solid parts. The distinction between those that uh, do it that way, and it turns out, based on some recent research, it's not really literal injection because they don't have a way to inject it. They just take advantage of a capillary action to get the digestive juices in. But uh, uh, those that chew their prey also liquefy it outside of the body and then suck it in. They're just... uh, aiding the process by crushing the prey with their digestive juices. <laughs> oh, golly. That's pretty brutal. Uh, I, I mean, that's that's such an... I mean, it makes them, you know, even more terrifying in some ways. Uh, so the ones who kind of, you know, digest the inside and kind of suck the, the inside out... You know, a lot of insects, you know, by design have this hard carapace. There's things that they aren't using. But it, meanwhile, it's tangled up in this web. How do they discard the husk? Do they cut it loose or do they just make a new web? Or how does that, how does that work? Sure. I'm, well, I mean, uh, actually, it's not very many web weavers that uh, use that technique. Uh, the only ones that do uh, that are, of common groups are the cobweb weavers, uh, such as uh, the widows and the false widows and the American house spider. And they will uh, cut the uh, carcass uh, once uh, once all usable parts have been digested, free of the web, and drop it. And they have under their web, typically, what we call a midden heap, which several researchers have made use of to study their diets. So what do the other spiders do if they're not cutting it loose? What, what are they doing? So it's going to clutter up their web at some point. Well, an orb weaver, for example, takes the entire prey insect, starts uh, crushing it with the jaws, then throws up digestive enzymes on it, crushes it some more, sucks them back in, and goes through many cycles of this until there's nothing left but a little indigestible ball. And that's dropped. <laughs> Wow, <laughs> that's crazy. I mean, it's efficient for sure. It's efficient, and you don't have to use any extra web. Uh, so, one of my my favorite spider to talk about, and this is pretty far away, so you may not. I'm sure you've heard of it, but you may not know about it. Um, you know, from a scientific standpoint, but you may surprise me. Who knows? Is the huntsman spider in Australia? This is. You know, basically, it's a house spider in Australia that is gigantic and aggressive <laughs> and fast. Well, huntsman spiders are not just in Australia. There's there's one species that's found in the tropics all, all over the world. 
super common in Hawaii, for example. Sure, yeah, I, and that's true. I mean, the giant huntsman in Laos is the largest, has the largest leg span of any spider, and they're you know they're, they're all over the world. But specifically in Australia, I'm talking about the I don't know what this, the genus or species is of the huntsman spider. I probably should have looked it up. Uh, but the huntsman spider in Australia, do you know about this spider? Well, uh, huntsman spiders are an entire family of spiders with hundreds of species, and uh, that's not a name that that in itself is not a name of any specific species. Right, right. Okay. Uh, so the the one in the one in Australia is one of my favorites to talk about. It's it's gigantic, but the venom's not very powerful. Like most most venom, you know, spider venom doesn't really affect humans. Uh, but it's 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 an incredible spider to 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 look at for sure. Definitely scary. Not a spider I would want to find in my house. Definitely a spider I would not let hang out in my house. I would definitely put it outside, whether it was going to survive or not. I got to tell you. Uh, but the, you have you know a Goliath bird eater. There's a I've got a picture of you with holding one. You have one in your collection. These are the largest spiders by mass, second by leg span. Uh, from what I understand, the one you have was actually kind of hitched a ride here on a, in a banana cart from Cuba. Well, that's well, that's what we believe. The label says it was collected in a fruit warehouse. The person who uh, donated it didn't give uh, uh, a great many details. Okay, that's fair. Uh, th- now, does that happen often? Does that, that, that spiders kind of hitch a ride on different fruit? I mean, if it, you know, that's a pretty big spider to be, to miss. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it's, uh, it's pretty common for huntsman spiders and certain other spiders to uh, be found in fruit shipments. It's uh, not uncommon for black widows to turn up in shipments of California grapes, for example. Sure, yeah, I guess that, that makes sense. I mean, the, the Goliath bird eater, it, it doesn't eat birds, but it, it definitely looks like it could. It's a gigantic spider. Uh, now, as we close up here, I want to talk about some of the more fantastical versions of spiders, if you know about them. But one I remember, I don't have any examples. You know, I'm, this this could be a myth that you can bust on your on your website if I'm completely wrong here. But is there a spider that that can basically weave a web over a lake or stream or whatever and catch fish as they jump out of the out of the water? Well, I'm not sure about the fish part. There are spiders that eat fish, uh, although not as a, the primary uh, element of their diet. And there are spiders. Uh, right here in my local area that weave webs uh, over ponds and streams. They catch primarily uh, gnats and mosquitoes. I see. So they, so the, the positioning of the web over the lake, river, stream, or whatever is more for the insects that live on the water surface. At least in the ones I'm familiar with. The spider that's called a fishing spider is a non-web maker. It actually dives underwater and actively hunts uh, chiefly for aquatic insects, but occasionally they will catch a very small fish or tadpole. Wait, hold on a second. There's a spider that actively dives underwater to hunt insects and sometimes fish. That's wh- Where is that located? That's unbelievable. Well, there's uh, uh, a number of different species of them. They're found uh, pretty much throughout the United States. One of them is... Uh, Found here in my state, Dolomedes triton. It's got that little triton on the end. That's how you know it's all about the sea. Is that is that more of an ocean, a river kind of a, a spider? No, it's uh, we find that one chiefly in uh, wetlands and large ponds. Wow, that's and how big are they? They're they're fairly good sized. Leg span of an adult can be uh, 
three or four inches and a really big one. Wow, that's pretty big. <laughs> that's pretty big. I wouldn't want to be swimming and have that crawl up on me. And they can, uh, like the insects that are called water striders, that some people get mixed up with spiders, uh, they can uh, float on the surface tension of water, but they usually rest at the edge of a, water, of a body of water dive under when they uh, see something to dive for. Wow, that's crazy. <laughs> uh, so in closing, last question here. What is your favorite either spider or spider characteristic that most people don't know about? Well, the best uh, the best thing about spiders is simply that they are the most important predators on insects. Without spider predation, uh, the whole surface of the land areas of the earth would be totally unrecognizable. Now, you mentioned, I think, in one of the videos, you said that there probably wouldn't be any food if it wasn't for spiders, um, you know, crops or and whatnot, because they would all be eaten by insects. I mean, do, do you really believe that's that's true? Are they that important to culling the insect population? Well, certainly. I mean, uh, most insect species that eat plants, uh, for example, but also things like mosquitoes and other bloodsuckers, et cetera, et cetera, are kept from going into a boom and bust cycle like a plague of locusts because of spider predation. If, if, they, if they did not have predation control on their populations, they'd become more food limited. And that means uh, they keep reproducing until they've eaten all the food, and then they go into a bust cycle. Mm, okay, I see. Wow. I, I mean, I think that's an important part. That's an important characteristic. I don't know if people understand just how how crucial spiders are to really keeping insects at bay. Uh, you know, <laughs> no one likes insects. People say they don't like spiders, but, you know, which one do you not like the most? But humans are very fickle creatures. Most people probably think insects are spiders, even though they should have learned the difference. <laughs> or, right. I mean, spiders are insects, even though they should have learned the difference in kindergarten. <laughs> right. No, that's very true. Uh, so where can people find you? I mean, are, are you? do you give tours of your specimen collection? Is it, is it kind of like in a bunker underneath and it's kind of known at the Burke Museum? Do you have specimens on display? How can people find you, get in touch with you? Well, in the current... Uh, Burke Museum building, which is a new, brand new building, only a bit, little more than a year old. Uh, all the all the spiders are on the second floor, along with all the other biology, and uh, nobody's there right now. <laughs> right, fair enough. Yeah, that's true. That is true. Giving tours is not one of the regular things I do. You've got to get special permission. Right. Okay, that's fair. Um, you've got a lot of this stuff online. I mean, I'm going to put a link to your spider myths, which is a, a great, I mean, it's a very comprehensive list of anything that you've thought about in spiders. Uh, you busted for them. And you've got specimen collecting adventures. I'll put a link to to the scarabs and, and all that kind of fun stuff. Uh, but I assume you're not a social media guy. I'm sure you're not on, online doing social media, I assume. No, I am definitely not a social media guy. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. And I probably miss out on some myths that way. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely. Well, if you think my my myth about the catching fl catching fish over over a lake or pond is worth putting up on your mythology page, uh, let well, me know. I, mean, I don't know. That's not impossible. There might be some spider that uh, does that. I I don't read every single research paper that comes out. Sure. No, that's fair. There's a lot of them that come out. But it would be an honor if I say something that would end up on your my, your spider myth page. I'd love to have it on there. Uh, well, this has been an absolutely incredible conversation. Rod Crawford, thank you so much for being on the show today. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. 
Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. If you want to learn more about spiders, if you want to see some videos and some articles and just check out more about the show, best place to do it is the website for the show, fascinatingnouns.com. That's where you want to be. You can find links to previous episodes, previous guests, more stuff on this episode, and you can even follow the show on social media. If you scroll down to the bottom, you can find links to the show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages, all at the bottom of the Fascinating Nouns webpage. And of course, you can't leave that webpage without first subscribing. You never want to miss an episode. You can find the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Spotify. Make sure you subscribe so that you will get a new episode every two weeks. And if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com to find out more. Thank you for listening. End of transmission.